Welcome to episode number 194, Angels and Ordinary Lives. Before I begin talking about this idea, I want you to understand that I feel myself very ordinary in almost every way of my life. I've had some wonderful experiences and obviously some difficult trials, but I've always felt kind of middle of the pack ordinary. There exists no real outstanding achievement in my life, scholastically, socially, or even through my career. I have wonderful, extraordinary children, and yet from the world's standard, they are also quite normal and ordinary. It is also important to understand that most of us feel this way. We feel very ordinary, or perhaps because of our illness that lessens our capacity and our capability, we may feel less than ordinary. Feeling ordinary in a society where comparison is the mode of operation is actually very human. Our brain, by its very nature and setup, uses comparisons all the time. We're wired to think in comparisons. The problem with comparisons that we make is that we regularly make them without all the information needed to make informed comparisons. So our mind generally works on faulty information, comparing our lives to those around us, and we then seem ordinary or even subpar most of the time. The problem is only amplified when we use social media for those comparisons because we are then comparing our entire life with all its mistakes, errors, and sin to a modified online life showing only the sunny mistake-free days. We post the good on our social media pages, but we generally don't post those moments that lead us to those good days. All the trial, the error, the frustration, mistakes that led to our success tends to be private, as if by acknowledging it, somehow we lessen the perfect sunny days. Sunny, beautiful days don't come without experiencing the rainy cold ones. We know how wonderful that perfect sunny day is because we have experienced far too many moments that have allowed us to see just how many mistake-filled rainy days it takes to get to one sunny one. Just how few those sunny days are and the multitude of rainy ones gives us understanding and perspective. Ordinary lives that come from ordinary days, ordinary weeks, and ordinary months allow us to enjoy the extraordinary ones and find great joy in them. Joy is much sweeter once you know the painful reality of unhappiness. Now with that idea, I think it's important to show how Christ felt about these ordinary or subpar lives and those of us who have learned some very difficult lessons in life. There is a story that many of us know well in the New Testament as Christ is beginning his mission, or at least in the early stages of it. He travels north to Galilee, and instead of taking the long route, which would have kept him in Jewish territory, he specifically chose to travel through Samaria, a land the Jew felt was very unclean. Now we find that he had a great purpose in his decision, as he always did. As he traveled, he and his disciples stopped outside of a town close to Jacob's well. His disciples left to find food, and he was left alone at the well. While there, a Samaritan woman approached the well to obtain water. Initially, we know very little about her, except for she is Samaritan, as the Savior actually begins a conversation and then provides a witness of his divinity. In the end, though, we find her life is not in a good place. She has struggled through relationships and was, at the time, living outside of marriage. Being that she is alone at the well, it is also possible that life has left her without many friends or family to help. 
Certainly, she must be lonely, and given what was about to happen in her life, meeting the Savior, I assume that that particular day had not gone well. In fact, she might have been having one of those weeks, and now some stranger is asking questions and then revealing her intimate life to her. I could imagine her saying, Could this day get any better? I find it hopeful and encouraging that the Savior chose this wonderful woman to be his first witness in Samaria of his ministry and his mission. Her life was a mess. She probably felt like she was the last person Christ would visit and give her a witness of his divine mission and to testify of him. I am certain that walking to the well, she probably had given up all hope. She was the black sheep of the black sheep family. Samaritans at this time were considered worse than Romans, unclean, unfit, and their mixed blood was of no value to the Jewish kingdom of heaven. It seems that Christ shows up in these particular moments in life, when we have found that our trials, whether by outside forces or our own forces, have broken us down to the very core. We feel lost, we feel broken, confused, and hopeless. We feel like we are unfit, unworthy, and of little value in the kingdom. It is even true that we may feel that the Savior does not even care or that God does not exist at all. And we have found hell even though we are doubting that heaven exists. There she was, broken, beaten by life, walking to a well as she had done so many times before, not even fully understanding or knowing what was about to take place. And yet, he chose her to be his first witness, the person that no one would ever expect, a walking set of weaknesses, faults, and even perhaps illnesses that certainly could barely provide for its own life, much less be something the Savior could use. And yet, again, she stood before the Savior of the world. Many, a great many righteous individuals would have given anything to be where she was at that moment, alone with the Savior, obtaining a personal witness of his divinity. She is in some ways a hero to me, someone in whom I can identify with or see myself at times. The idea that the Savior would come to her and make her his witness fills me with much greater hope. Now, I admit to reading a great deal of church books. I, enjoy, I really do enjoy the doctrine of the church, and I listen and read regularly. However, I have always struggled with the biographies of church leaders. I have struggled deeply to identify with them, and I have rarely finished a biography of one of the major church leaders. My life, in the sense of what I have accomplished professionally and even spiritually, does not seem to compare very well to others. And when I say not very well, I mean not hardly at all. The only thing, I personally only made it through about half of Elder Oak's biography before I really couldn't read any further. He had done more by the time he was 30 years old than I will ever accomplish in my life. Now I get it. I know the doctrine of the church. I know what the Savior has said. We shouldn't compare ourselves to others. We should judge righteous judgment, and that includes ourselves. We shouldn't attempt to see how we are doing in life by seeing how much others have done. I know this. I understand it. And yet, I struggle to finish a biography. You see, our minds are set up to compare. This is how we judge ourselves. We need a living standard, someone that we can look to and say, yeah, I think I am doing just fine. We need someone to identify with that we can say to ourselves, if the Lord is pleased with that person, then I do have a shot at celestial life. 
Whether wrong or right, we tend to look to living standards when we want to know if we are going to be able to obtain exaltation. We also need someone that has experienced something similar to ourselves. So in order for us to feel as though we have a chance, we need two things. And we are consistently attempting to find them, subconsciously or consciously. We need, one, someone like ourselves with similar experiences and background. And two, we need to feel that they have a good chance of making it to celestial life and exaltation. Something akin to, if she can be exalted, then I might have a chance. That is why we tend to look to the general authorities and officers of the church. Whether true or not, we tend to think that they are going to make it. And so it gives us great hope when we can see someone just like us who has had similar life experience and is serving in such a position. Now, I think that this is probably my difficulty with biographies of church leaders. I struggle to see their lives as anything like mine. So often they appear so accomplished, motivated, educated, and really different from my life. I admit that I struggle to see myself in the same kingdom as these men and women. The reason I say this is because I feel that many of us feel this way. It is a part of our lives. And yes, we understand that we shouldn't compare, but I admit that it would be nice to see at least one general authority who has struggled through a lifetime of mental health challenges and, of course, other limiting factors. I think that's why I love the New Testament so much. The woman at the well, the fishermen for disciples, the children the Savior loves so much, the lepers, the blind, the halt. He seemed to be consistently with these individuals, lifting them up, caring for them, weeping with them. I've always liked to think, and I've often stated, that I believe that the administration of the church, those administrative duties, the Lord really tries to leave that to the Spirit of the Lord and the brethren on this side of the veil. The Lord himself chooses to minister to women and men such as the Samaritan woman, those of us who suffer deeply in this life and even the next, and I can't personally imagine him doing anything else. Now, we logically know that he cannot be with every person all the time. So I have a personal theory that tends to hold some credibility within the doctrine of the church. When the Lord cannot be there himself, he sends others from the other side of the veil. These are not strangers, but those who loved and deeply cared for us. I really think that one of the major ideas that the Savior wanted to teach us about the woman at the well is that he comes for us and ministers to us when our lives have been broken and beaten and busted and battered. He came to this woman in her need, traveling an uncommon route to get to her. She was definitely out of his way, but not out of his reach. I have had this impression upon me recently with a personal experience. He sends others regularly from the other side of the veil to comfort, teach, and yes, hold us while we suffer and grieve. When the storms of life are at their most violent, he seems to come to the rescue, restore, and lift us. I have had the experience recently with a couple of family members struggling through deep trials. When this has occurred, it seems those who have passed on have come to minister and to love them. These people still hold us dear and suffer when we do. So often it is our family that comes to us from the other side of the veil. They cry with us, they laugh with us, they listen to our struggles, and they do what is in their power to provide comfort, peace, and understanding. My wife's mother has often visited us in times of need. She passed away several years ago along with my wife's brother who does visit. And I've often felt my own great-grandparents and my grandmother standing beside me in those moments when life seems to deal those crushing blows. 
I suppose that some refer to these moments as guardian angel moments, but I prefer the term ministering angels. Angels come to ordinary people regularly, especially when we suffer deeply. I feel that it is an important concept when we suffer with mental illness. To say that we are alone in our mental illness is simply not true. When we suffer, the Lord sends his angels or comes himself. Like this woman at the well, who likely felt she would be the last person the Savior would come to visit or even care about, we find that the Savior cares for us immensely and continues his ministry, perhaps in our day in a more subtle way. He is there beside us always, whether himself or another who is close to us. Part of the mission of those who have passed on is to continue to minister to those who remain. These moments are often sacred ones when we feel and know that they are present in the room with us. And the Spirit speaks those words that are that they are there, ministering to our needs. Now, I'm going to shift a little bit to a, a little bit of a different related topic, and I'll weave them together. I have been somewhat of a fan of the television show The Chosen, and I have returned to a moment in those episodes time and time again as I watch them. I have a favorite story in the New Testament. It is the healing of the man at the pool of Bethsaida. This man, who had been paralyzed for many years, was in many ways similar to the Samaritan woman. He had no thought that his day would ever come, that the Savior of the world would minister personally to him. It was just another day at this frustrating pool. No doubt, like this woman, his life felt worthless to him. He was of little value to Jewish society that so often marginalized those who had flaws. And it was likely that the day Jesus arrived to minister was not a good day. And yet, in a moment of time, and without expectation, the Savior was standing in front of him. I've always enjoyed the conversation between the Savior and this man in this series. There's one moment during the conversation where the Savior and this man talk about that water and what it really means to him. The man talks about the water as his source of hope, and yet he knows deeply, deep down that the water holds only a false hope. And yet he remains by the water, because even false hope is better than no hope. Now the Savior's response to him has caused me to think about what those waters might necessarily be in my life. The Savior stated in that portion of the movie something profound, at least I felt so, and he said to the man, you know that these waters hold nothing for you, and yet you are still here. Why? The man, almost crying out, replies, I don't know. Sometimes when the storms of life have blown over us like a hurricane, destroying everything we have in our lives, we hold on to anything that gives us hope, and even a false hope. When our lives have been beaten by our illness, and we have been led down difficult roads, it seems that when all hope is lost, the Savior suddenly appears, and He gives us true hope and encouragement. He helps us see our true value and our worth. He picks us up from our false hopes and pools of Bethsaida and shattered dreams and gives us new hope and new dreams to dream. He sends forth angels from the other side, and when the time is right, he himself comes to minister to us and heals us of those seemingly endless moments of doubt, distrust, loneliness, and isolation. He does know us personally and will go out of his way to find us. The key to it all is that we must be simply willing to receive him when he comes. We must be willing to let go of false hopes and place our trust and hope in Him. That is no easy task when we have been ostracized and feel transparent to those around us, and when our illness has drug us through the gulf of misery. 
Yet all of the important things that the Savior probably needed to do at that moment, he visited a lonely and downtrodden woman, walking to a well, having no idea that today was her day. He visited a man whose only hope was now superstitious bubbles in a well. Their lives had not gone as expected or hoped. Both were lost in a sea of doubt, defeat, and resignation to their fate. However, in a moment when they least expected it, he was there, offering his healing witness and his power to them. The Lord does choose the weak things of the earth to break down the mighty and strong ones. Until then, we should know that we are as worthy as they are for admittance into the kingdom of heaven. Mental and emotional illness does not bar us from celestial life. I think, in the end, we might find that it provided the very means by which we were able to obtain it. Until then, may those angels from the other side of the veil find you frequently. And until next week, do your part so that the Lord can do his.